Today on Clear Approach, we talk about the COVID vaccines and what it means for pilots. And I share a personal story with you that I think you'll really enjoy. All this and more coming up on the Mayo Clinic Clear Approach podcast, your home for aerospace medicine that matters. Well, welcome everyone to episode five of the Clear Approach podcast. This is Dr. Van, your medical co-pilot, bringing you a special Thanksgiving edition of our podcast. Now, I know that this podcast is coming out a little sooner than usual, but I figured that there are probably a lot of folks out there who are having a little bit more lonely a holiday than typical. So I figured why not push out an episode to give you some company wherever you may be, like on an airplane or train, or hiding in a guest bedroom at your in-laws. Now, as I mentioned in the last episode, these podcasts have been getting uh, a little bit longer each time, and this is not by design. So starting with this episode, the podcast is going to be getting a little bit shorter. That way I can avoid digitally lobotomizing you, and I can get the episodes out faster. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and jump right into today's medical topic, the COVID-19 vaccine. Honestly, I really do look forward to the day when I don't have to mention COVID on this podcast, but it is what it is. But at least today, we have some more positive news about COVID, and that's the COVID-19 vaccine. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, you have seen that there are some promising results from many vaccine manufacturers out there. And while the vaccine does seem like the holy grail that we've been waiting for, things are a little bit more tricky when it comes to pilots. To guide us through this topic, I've tapped, frankly, the greatest physician, AME, and renaissance man I have ever known, my boss. So with that, let's welcome back Dr. Clayton Cole to talk about the COVID-19 vaccine and what it means for flying. Okay, greetings. Uh, This is uh, Dr. Clay Cole, one of the Senior Aviation Medical Examiners at Mayo Clinic. And as you know, Dr. Van, uh, one of our jobs is to dynamite aeromedical myths. And one of those myths that have been going around is that the FAA is not going to allow pilots to get the COVID-19 vaccine. So we had to go back and check on that and see where that came from. And what we found out in talking to a couple of physicians within leadership at the Federal Air Surgeon's Office at the FAA in Washington was that pilots are not allowed to participate in vaccine trials because they aren't FDA approved and they do not yet know the safety profiles for those specific vaccines. However, What we've been told is that as soon as emergency use authorization has been granted by the FDA for any specific vaccine, that not only will pilots be eligible to fly after having received that vaccine, but will be encouraged to have the vaccine for COVID-19 prevention. So that's just to to clear that up. And then there's also the question in regards to what do I document if I actually contracted COVID-19? And the answer is it 
depends on the severity. So if you have a mild prodrome, for example, some nonspecific fatigue, maybe a dry cough, maybe you lost a sense of taste or smell for a few days, and then return to normal, uh, the FAA is going to treat that just like you would have contracted the flu. Uh, You would not necessarily be required to report that on your medical application form, the 8500-8. However, much like other conditions, if the Uh, underlying illness was severe enough that you needed to be hospitalized or worse yet, either be admitted to an intensive care unit or uh, undergo mechanical ventilation for severe respiratory issues, you would be required not only to report that particular hospitalization, but to uh, provide some updated material, i.e. a status report from your treating provider, indicating that you are either functionally back to your baseline or what any residual functional limitations might be. So I think one of the things that are going through physician discussion circles currently is just how amazing, how amazingly fast companies have responded to producing vaccines out there. And I think that Most people watching the news know that there are early results for two leading COVID-19 vaccines. Um, And what's fascinating about these is that they actually have implications that go beyond the current pandemic. In fact, these gene-based technologies that are being used, which really haven't been proven in the past, have actually now have the potential for providing new treatments for not only just COVID-19, but also for certain forms of cancer, for heart disease, and, and other infectious diseases out there. And the technology I'm referring to is something called messenger RNA or mRNA. And the mRNA uh, really refers to molecular couriers that deliver genetic instructions uh, to all of the cells of your body. And by programming the mRNA to recognize a certain virus and develop an immune response to that, um, it's been shown, this particular vaccine as it's been trialed right now, both of the vaccines, to have greater than 90% efficacy, which is tremendous considering each year we get a flu shot and it's only somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 to 70% efficacious. Now, there's not only mRNA technologies being tested out there for a vaccine. I mean, there are literally several dozen vaccines uh, in late-stage clinical trials right now. Another one is one produced from AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson uh, that are ba- that's based on technology that uses a common cold-type virus that in turn delivers genetic instructions that teach the human immune system how to mount a defense to that specific virus. And both of these particular 
types of technologies are in large late stage clinical trials that could yield results in the coming weeks or months uh, as well. Um, the company Merck, Merck and Company, uh, is taking a more traditional approach to the whole vaccine question by pursuing technologies that take a weakened virus that then multiplies in the body to generate an immune response thereafter. Part of the issue with this is that the this type of re, type of research takes a little bit longer to develop than the mRNA versions uh, that we've heard about more recently. But the flip side of that is the company says that its vaccines could produce more lasting protection against coronavirus than some of these other technologies. But we don't know yet. Uh, there's a lot more unknown probably than known at this time. One thing that we do know right now about the mRNA uh, vaccine technologies is that it requires a two-shot process. So you would be getting one shot initially and then a booster in another four to six weeks thereafter. The other logistical challenge with it is that it has to be kept on ice. And so for mass vaccination programs, that could be somewhat challenging, but I am sure that the, uh, the medical field, we will be able to figure out ways to get through that if that indeed is the pathway that we end up using to start vaccinating folks uh, for this pandemic. So with that, I will turn things back over to you, Dr. Van, and the exciting news and clear approach. Well, thank you, Dr. Cole, for that great information about the vaccine. Now, I know what the listeners out there are really wondering, Dr. Van, are you going to get the vaccine? And will you vaccinate your family? And the short answer is absolutely. I'm going to get the vaccine and I'm going to vaccinate the family. No, I'm not going to pretend that there are not some uh, unknown risks and inherent risks with a new vaccine. But I also know that there are risks from getting COVID-19, like death. And so for my family and I, the risk of the vaccine is less than the risk of getting COVID-19. So I'll be there on day one to get my vaccination, just maybe 10th in line versus first in line, just to make sure the people in front of me don't explode or keel over. For today's interview segment, I thought it would be an okay time for me to turn the microphone back to me, especially since it's hard to catch up with interviewees during the holiday season. So today's is a segment about me, but not about me, and it has to do with prevention. Now, wait, 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 don't turn the podcast off. I know what you are thinking. Hearing another doctor say it is important to get your blood pressure checked is about as exciting as watching runways getting paved. But I hope today will be a little bit more interesting. Because the story that I'm about to share is not just about prevention, but also about a boy and the love of flying and how my sister died. Now, I'm sure everyone must think this about their siblings, but I had the coolest siblings a kid could want. 
I was the, the youngest of three, and my sister was the oldest, and I have a middle brother. And what made my sister especially cool is that she essentially worked in a giant candy store known as the Smithsonian Institution. She had started there shortly after college, uh, first doing uh, docent work and then plowing away in the museum stores. Eventually, though, she moved up through the ranks and landed the ultimate job she wanted, working at the National Air and Space Museum. Specifically, her job was running a gallery, which is another word for exhibit, but a gallery called the How Things Fly Gallery and the Associated Explainers Program. If you had happened to visit the museum in the mid-90s, you might remember a gallery where young high school students taught visitors about the science behind flying. They did demonstrations about drag, for example, and explained the Bernoulli principle and such. In the corner of this exhibit, or uh, there was a uh, what looked like a faux radio tower or a control tower, but believe it or not, it was actually an office, and that's where my sister got to work, uh, overlooking the, the gallery floor. Anyhow, uh, this is when I was in high school, and uh, I actually went to boarding school, but that's a whole different podcast, trust me. But um, like any uh, high school student, I needed something to do in the summer to help keep me out of trouble. So with my sister's help, I actually got a couple of summer jobs at the Smithsonian over the, uh, the high school years. And these jobs range from pretty cool to pretty mundane. Uh, one summer, I spent cataloging new species of butterflies and moths from the rainforest at the uh, National Museum of Natural History. Another summer, I worked in the museum shops at the Fleer Gallery selling artwork. And another summer, I worked as a uh, summer camp counselor at the National Aerospace Museum, or NASM, as the, uh, the insiders call it. Now, I don't want to bore you with the details of that work, but I do want to share with you one guilty pleasure I had uh, through this work. My sister would start her job at around 7.30 in the morning, but my work typically didn't start until 10, which is when the museums opened up to the general public. But uh, since I had an employee badge and I didn't know how to drive, uh, that's another boarding school story, uh, my sister was my ride, and so I would just ride into work with her at 7.30. And basically, because of that, I would have the world's most visited museum all to myself for two and a half hours every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, all summer. And I basically... Spent the summer roaming around the different galleries, reading everything I could about the history of aviation and the pioneers that came before us. Like any kid, I liked airplanes and space and astronauts before that. But after many quiet hours in the shadow of things like Amelia Earhart's Lockheed Vega 5B or Chuck Yeager's Bell X-1, my fascination with flight was sealed. My sister enjoyed some perks, too. Her gallery was actually sponsored by Cessna, a.k.a. Textron, and they graciously gave her the chance to do flight training. Unfortunately, the time wasn't right for her, and I can remember her saying one day she'd get around to it. 
Fast forward to 2000, and that young, glassy-eyed kid in the shadow of aviation's history was a slightly less glassy-eyed first-year med student. Around that time, I began to notice some conversations my family was having with my sister, revolving around health. This was not surprising, since both my dad and my brother were doctors, and my mom was a nurse. And from what I can remember now, there seemed to be pushes for her to take care of herself. At the same time, my typically uh, jovial sister just seemed to become more recluse. You know, we used to do things like chat online or meet for dinner in D.C., but such things became more rare than routine. I remember she even missed my white coat ceremony at the start of med school, which, uh, believe it or not, is still quite a big thing. The last time I remember seeing my sister before it all happened was before Thanksgiving. I had just gotten home, and I had hoped to catch my sister as I knew she was supposed to head back up to Northern Virginia for work. As I came home, I, I caught her just leaving the house, seemingly in a rush, I asked if everything was okay. I just wanted to be together for a while. She said yes, and she was gone. A month later, my parents and brother found my sister barely alive in her apartment. After rushing her to the hospital, the story finally, shockingly, terribly became clear. For the past few months, cancer likely ovarian, had quickly been growing through her body, making it essentially impossible for her to eat or drink or even seek help as she neared the end. In the weeks that followed her diagnosis between all the surgeries, the ICU stays, all the different hospitals, the story unraveled more. As it turns out, my sister had been terrified of going to the doctor. She had always been very private, and I knew that. And she couldn't fathom the idea of getting regular checkups, like getting pap smears or gynecological exams. So she waited and waited and battled two fears. The fear of knowing something was terribly wrong and causing her to suffer, and the fear of not knowing. Paralyzed by this, she persevered on her own as much as she could and kept her illness to herself instead of seeking care and treatment that likely would have easily saved her life. I really wish I could say that this event played out like some sort of lifetime movie special, that somehow the nidus of medical knowledge that my family is was able to work through all the usual entanglements of the healthcare system and this turned into some sort of uh, medical uh, show on TV. But you see, cancer doesn't care who you are. After six months, my sister, at the age of 33, died alone with me only by her side. I, uh, I still remember it vividly, which I suppose makes sense. After being surrounded by the beeping of monitors and IV pumps for months, 
I remember being first shocked how quiet everything was in the room. An on-call physician who I had never seen before, and I don't even know what his name was, was the one that told me she had died by just saying, I'm sorry. The only response I could muster was, thank you. In the weeks that followed her death, the usual pain and arrangements followed. I am proud to say that for her funeral, the Smithsonian bust her students and fellow employees down from Washington, D.C. to remember her. Today, her legacy continues with the ongoing explainers program and the ongoing How Things Fly gallery, which is actually currently being renovated. In addition, she's also listed on the Wall of Honor at the Stephen F. Udvar Hazard Center in Chantilly, Virginia. You can find her name on foil 9, panel 2, column 11, line 32. So why am I sharing this story with you today? The reason is, is that many pilots don't really want to talk or hear about prevention. And this is the truth. And it's also a terrible truth and pretty ironic. Us pilots have been able to keep airplanes older than the Cold War flying due to prevention. And heaven forbid we miss an oil change or an engine overhaul or an airworthiness directive. But getting a once a decade colonoscopy can't be bothered. Believe it or not, the purpose of this story is not to convince you all that you should get your preventive care. You all already know this. But rather, just please realize the ramifications of whatever decision you make and what it means for you, your future, and for your loved ones. I honestly believe that if my sister had been able to get the necessary preventive care she needed, she would be here with us today instead of this story, and I would have one less empty seat at our dinner table. The other reason I wanted to share this story today is that my sister was one of those few people in my life that actually supported my love of flying and my pursuit to become a pilot. Now, that isn't some sort of knock on my parents or my brother. They've only had my best interest in mind when they've given me advice on this hobby over the years. And honestly, I'm not sure what I would do if one of my kids wanted to learn how to fly at this point. I can't even get them to flush a toilet or pick up the dog poop in the backyard yet. There's one memory that has always stuck with me through the years when it comes to my sister and flying. One day, she found me way too excited to be reading a book called The Space Shuttle Operator's Manual. I think you could still get it out there on like um, Amazon or something. And, uh, you know, it's got all the procedures, or most of them at least, and some cool diagrams of like the instrument panels and such. Uh, anyhow, I was pretty embarrassed when she found me. And I, I tried to hide the book away and pretend like, you know, nothing uncool was happening for this uh, this young kid. And uh, as I tried to hide the book, I remember the, the only thing she said was, go for it. 
And uh, I always remember that, and, and I thought it would be a good time to, to share her story today as I finally was able to do my solo this morning uh, on a beautiful morning here in Minnesota. It was everything that I dreamed it would be over the last, uh, honestly, 20 years, I will say, and um, just an incredible experience and uh, still surreal at this point. So with that, I'd like to dedicate this episode to my sister. Thanks, sis. Here's to you. Well, I hope you've enjoyed today's special Thanksgiving edition of the Mayo Clinic Clear Approach podcast. If you'd like to leave us any comments, or if you think you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as one of our guests, just drop us a line at the Mayo Clinic Clear Approach podcast website at mayocliniclearapproach.blueberry.net. And don't forget that this podcast is an offshoot of our Mayo Clinic Clear Approach consulting service. You can go to mayoclinic.org and search for Clear Approach. There, you can anonymously send our team of senior aviation medical examiners any questions you might have about your health and flying. Again, I thank you for visiting with us and spending part of your holiday weekend with our podcast. Until we meet next time, this is Dr. Van, your medical co-pilot, wishing you great flying and even better health.